hyperbole time. Yes, that's right. The last time I used this cold open to make a bold statement about film was back in week 12 during the opening to Liar Liar, in which I declared that Jim Carrey was the comedic actor of the 90s. Now, that wasn't very controversial, but maybe, maybe I'll get closer to irking some of you with this one. In 1993, Steven Spielberg had the most impressive and well-accomplished calendar year that any director has ever had. He not only directed a personal film on an epic scale in Schindler's List, winning seven Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Picture, but he also put out one of the definitive blockbuster films ever made in Jurassic Park, that movie itself taking home three Oscars. Spielberg was at the top of his game, and maybe he played the game too hard. Spielberg took a well-deserved break spanning just about three years before he came back to directing again back in, you guessed it, 1997. And to show that he wasn't fading, Spielberg again took on an historical epic in Amistad, which will be covered later in the season, and the blockbuster follow-up, The Lost World. Given the way those films have been analyzed during the last 25 years, I think it's safe to say that Spielberg needed to dust off the cobwebs just a bit more. Hello there. My name is Adam St. John. I'm an actor, professor, podcaster, and a millennial. And this is Rewind 2552. That's right. We're going back a quarter of a century to the week to discuss the newest and highest grossing entry into the U.S. box office. 25 years ago, 52 weeks in a year. My guest this week, um, a, a fellow cinephile, um, also a really nice kind of full circle uh, guest returning from a different podcast that I used to do. Um, his name is Ben Stahl. Ben, how are you doing this evening? Oh, Adam, I'm, I'm doing all right. Uh, like I said before we started recording, uh, I'm looking forward to jumping back into this era, an era when you and I were both much, much younger men. <laughs> that that we were um so i just wanted to take a second um because obviously you know part of part of what brought us together in college we should say that we went to college together um was a love of film and we definitely spent many a rehearsal uh in in the uh the downtime i should say not actively in rehearsal um talking about movies and stuff um and that you were uh our guests on a thousand and one by one when we did jurassic park so it just seemed to make a lot of sense to me to invite you on to talk about the lost world. Um, but before, before we get to that, before we get to it, uh, we're going to find out a little bit about you, Ben. So the week that we are specifically talking about um, is the week of May 23rd through the 29th, 1997. And while I don't expect that, you know, exactly where you were that week, 25 years ago, um, generally speaking, it's May 97. Uh, how old are you? Where are you living? And what is your clearest memory of this time? Okay, so 97, I would have been 12 years old. You know, getting ready to close out the sixth grade. Uh, living basically where I am now, down in Auburn, Washington. Um, I specifically actually remember seeing this film at the Valley Six drive-in, which no longer exists, at the, uh, the southernmost border of Kent. Um, tragically that's, it's been gone for about 10 years, but, uh, I remember it was a big deal. I'd already seen the first Jurassic Park at the drive-in. So it was really cool to see this one. And for the first time I was old enough that my dad had decided we were going to stick around because they were going to play 
uh, it was the Lost World and Dante's Peak, and then they were going to play the Lost World again. And I was old enough at the time that Dad finally thought, okay, we're going to stick around and we're going to watch the Lost World again. And so we left the theater and the sun was coming up. So that's a pretty pretty wild memory. And then uh, the, the following Monday at school, I, I thought this was really awkward because, you know, this is middle school. But the principal gets on the intercom, does the morning announcements. And then he asks everyone who saw the Lost World this weekend, which when, when I was that age, you know, in the, in the 90s, PG-13, there was still this sense of like, you know, this was the stuff that a lot of older kids would be seeing, you know, not a bunch of middle school kids. So it was really awkward because, you know, nowadays PG-13, I think, doesn't carry the weight it did back then. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, uh, and a couple of things to what you said. Uh, uh, oh, my oh, my God. It's, I love that there was a double feature with Dante's Peak, which was um, pre- previously covered on the show. Um, but I think this is also if I'm not mistaken, this is the first movie uh, that I've covered so far that I remember seeing in theaters when I was a kid, because a lot of them uh, that we've covered so far, I, I either hadn't seen uh, up until covering them on the pod, or I was just too young for, and there's no way I would have been able to watch at that time. Um, but I think, I think, cause this was, this was a Memorial day release the, or weekend. Um, and it was a big deal. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into it later, but like the, publicity for this movie i mean i was i wasn't even necessarily i mean i certainly liked jurassic park as a kid i certainly like it more now but i was very aware of this movie and was like very excited for it to come out um well perfect uh ben thank you for sharing a little bit about yourself there uh now this is normally where i do some stuff from the uh like i call it the quick hits stuff stuff that was going on in the news and sports and pop culture not really a lot here that i wanted to to say so the only thing i pulled and this is just really dumb so bear with me but i cannot think of a more 1997 actor tv actor uh than tim allen uh this is still i think uh home improvement still very much in its heyday uh, but on May 24th, 1997, uh, Tim Allen was arrested for drunk driving in Birmingham, Michigan, where he blew a .15, which is nearly double the legal limit, um, which I'm not laughing. That's not funny. I just I'm like, wow, Tim Allen, like on top of the world, uh, arrested and he arrested in like one of the more posh suburbs of Detroit. So like just goes to show you maybe maybe what was going on in, in his world. Um any any Tim Allen thoughts you want to share, Ben? Uh, I wow, I, I can't believe I remember that. Like, <laughs> I don't remember like paying that much attention to it, but I do remember it. And wow, what what a moment to think that. Uh, I think that was one of the first times I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, a big celebrity can uh, have a bit of a downfall." <laughs> like I'd yeah. never really paid attention um, to any of that before. Yeah, well, and and a few weeks before this was the infamous week where uh, Eddie Murphy was picked up for solicitation of a prostitute. That was um that was also this year. So um, big time comic actors getting busted doing things they probably shouldn't have been doing. I would say. Um, so the other thing I've been doing is I've been tracking the Nielsen ratings, and I was able to find the top thirty rated shows of the year, and I've been kind of doling them out. Um, I'm sorry to say I've got kind of a, a boring one 
here. Um, so tied for number 17th, uh, the 17th highest rated, highest watched show on TV this year was Primetime Live with Diane Sawyer and Sam Donaldson. Um, so I feel like we're we're kind of the the days of of like primetime live in 2020 and I, I know 60 minutes is still on but it seems like even that's starting to fade so the sort of investigative journalism as tv show is sort of um gone by the wayside but any uh you know any any random diane sawyer thoughts you want to put out there because i i honestly i don't have any uh i can't say that i do either you know that's something that definitely would not have interested 12 year old ben uh hard agree hard agree on that one um so let's let's go to music where we have a shift we have a huge shift. So the number one billboard hit is no longer hypnotized by the notorious B.I.G. We are pivoting hard. We are going away from bad boy records. We are going away from rap to this ditty that is going to get stuck in your head. Yeah, we are talking about Hanson, and we are talking about Mbop. Ben, do you remember Mbop? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, it gets stuck in your head. Um, I was not a fan, but I mean, it was everywhere. You, you know, you couldn't miss it. Uh, yes, uh, the, absolutely true. Um, and some fun, some fun facts that I pulled, uh, is just all that's going to do is reinforce the point that you just make. So here's some, here's some statistics about that song. Uh, it reached number one in 12 countries. This song was voted the best single of the year in the village voice. I uh, also topped critics polls, uh, such as, uh, Rolling Stone spin and VH1. It was ranked number 20 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 90s and number 98 on the, uh, the 100 Greatest Songs of the Past 25 Years. Um, when the when Billboards did a uh, Hot 100 for all of the 90s, it was number 57. So not just catchy, but also people saying that it was a good enough song um, to uh, deserve such accolades. And then even at the Grammys, at the Grammys, it was up, it was up for record of the year, which it didn't win. It would lose to um, Sean Colvin's Sonny Came Home. And it, it also lost best pop performance by a duo or group with vocal to another song that I haven't thought about until I was doing the research. Do you remember Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai? Uh, I'd probably recognize if I heard it, but music was not my thing back then. It, it, the music video is is what I remember even more than the song because it's the guy and he's wearing a crazy hat and he's like, it's like treadmills all in the music video and he's just moving around and doing like dance moves. But I remember the like the treadmill stuff of it. Uh, it was it was weird. But anyway, um, we're not talking about Jamiroquai. Um, so Hanson, we've made it to Hanson. Hanson will reign atop the Billboard charts for a couple of weeks. Um, but I just, I couldn't, I'm like, wow. If there's anything more 1997 pop than that, I, I, I really don't know what it is. And, and apologies to everybody who is now humming that song. I, 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 I do apologize for that. Um, so, Ben, we're almost to talking about The Lost World. 
Uh, but what we're going to do first is we're going to quickly recap what were then the top 10 movies at the box office. So I will quickly run through them. And then any thoughts you want to shout out about any of those, feel free. So uh, at number 10 and uh, rocketing back up into the top 10, because in the previous week, it wasn't even in the top 16 films is Absolute Power, uh, previously covered on the show. Uh, at number nine and down two positions, and previously covered on the show, Night Falls on Manhattan. Number eight and down three positions, and previously covered on the show, Volcano. Number seven and down one position, and previously meant, uh, previous episode of the show, Liar Liar. Number six and down four positions, Father's Day. Number five and down one position, and previous episode of the show, Breakdown. Number four and down one position, Austin Powers. Number three and down two positions and previous episode of the show, The Fifth Element. Number two and new this week, Addicted to Love. And number one, surprising nobody, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. So any of those other movies in the top 10 spring to mind? Good thoughts, bad thoughts, any thoughts? Oh, middle school Ben. Um, Middle school Ben did like Austin Powers, you know, that was that first sort of jump into adult comedy. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of lost its edge over the course of the you know last 25 years. But uh, one movie that uh, I do still appreciate to this day is the fifth element. I think that's one of the better original sci-fi films to come out of the nineties. Um, just Bruce, you know, seeing Bruce Willis doing something different from die hard. Not that much different, but different enough. <laughs> I was just, I, I was going to say, I, uh, acquaintance of ours, uh, Andrew Shanks was my co-host on that episode. And um, I could not help but see all of the John McClane similarities, which is, <laughs> I love it. I, that's great. I love it. Um, cool. Any, any other thoughts? Uh, no, honestly, like most of those movies, apart from the ones that I just mentioned, and uh, I also, I, I've seen Absolute Power, but... Uh, you know, again, this is the 90s. 12-year-old Ben is not interested in drama, romantic comedies. You know, the cinephile is not quite there yet. Um, but as we'll all find out soon, I'm very <laughs> I'm very ready for, you know, movies with dinosaurs. Okay, well, let's then I think we should shift over to that. <laughs> so um, we are, of course, talking today about The Lost World Jurassic Park um, called... The Lost World, Jurassic Park, uh, as to not be confused with The Lost World. Because, you know, copyright things and all that good stuff. Uh, so this is, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, with many, many writers, the sole credited writer is David Kep. Uh, our cast. Uh, so I'll, I'm going to kind of go a little all over the place. So returning uh, as, as the star is Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, Richard Attenborough comes back as Dr. John Hammond. And then also uh, Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards as Tim and Lex, the uh, the, the the grandchildren of said uh, John Hammond. Um, and then new to the game. And this is actually a really stacked cast with a lot of people like right on the brink of becoming names. Uh, so we have uh, Julianne Moore as Dr. Sarah Harding, Pete Postlethwaite as Roland Tempo, uh, Arlen, Arliss Howard as Peter Ludlow, and I will say that he is Hammond's nephew. Uh, Vince Vaughn as Nick Van Owen. And uh, Richard Schiff as Eddie Carr. They are on the same team that goes to the island as uh, Sarah and Ian. Uh, and also, um, uh, gotta give a little shout out to Vanessa Chester, who plays Malcolm's daughter, Kelly. And one of my 
favorite, favorite character actors of all time, Peter Stormare as Dieter, the second in command of, uh, of Tembo's group. Um, did, I, did I leave anybody out that deserves some recognition? Oh, uh, I don't think so. That kind of uh, rounds out like the, just, yeah, the core cast right there. Um, so in terms of accolades, uh, it was up for best visual effects that year, uh, losing as most films did that year to Titanic. Um, at the Saturn Awards, which specializes in sci-fi and horror and, uh, and thrillers, um, it was nominated for uh, best director, losing to a film that I will be covering soon, Face Off, which I'm very excited about. Um, it lost best fantasy film to Austin Powers, which is really interesting. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what's going on over at the Saturn Awards, but fine. That's fine. Um, it was also up for Best Young Actor or Actress Performance um, for Vanessa Chester, losing to Jenna Malone in Contact, which I will also be covering soon. Um, uh, I was up for Best Special Effects, which would lose to Starship Troopers. And Pete Postlethwaite was up for Best Supporting Actor, losing to Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black. So there's some just all over the place there at the Saturn Awards. Always good um, for some some great stuff. But then we got it. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to end on a negative note, but uh, it, it was up for some Razzies. It was up for some Razzies. Um, it was up for worst reckless disregard for human life and public property, uh, which it would lose to Con Air. Also going to be covered very soon. I'm excited about that. And it was up for best or sorry, I should say worst sequel, uh, which it would lose to Speed 2 again, covering really soon. And uh, it was up for worst screenplay, which it would lose to The Postman. So. Ben, it is 1997. Siskel and Ebert are at the height of their power. Did this movie get two thumbs up? Oh, you know what? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm going to say no. I know. I make make him guess. I make him guess. Now, are you going with like a solid two thumbs down or do you think one of them? I'm going to go with uh, one of each. Okay. So... There was this. I'm, I'm in a weird gap here where I don't think they were recording episodes because this was never officially covered on the show. But if I was to use the general star rating they give and how that equates with a thumbs up, thumbs down, I would say they both gave it a thumbs down. Um, both gave it two stars. I would love to read <laughs> Ebert's last paragraph um, just because it, it it's interesting and I, I kind of agree with it. Um, he goes... The film's structure is weird. I thought it was over, and then it began again with a San Diego sequence in which Spielberg seemed to be trying to upstage the upcoming Godzilla movie. The monster-stepping-on-car sequences in the current Japanese import Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, are more entertaining. And can we really believe that a ship could ram a pier at full speed and remain seaworthy? The problem with the movie is that the dinosaurs aren't allowed to be the stars. They're Marvis... They're marvelously conceived and executed, but no attempt is made to understand their fearsomeness. Much of the plot hinges on mommy and daddy T-Rexes exhibiting parental feelings for their offspring. Must we see everything in human terms? At one point, one character tells another, these creatures haven't walked the earth for tens of millions of years, and now all you want to do is shoot them? Somebody could have asked Spielberg the same question. (laughs) So, uh, a bit critical there. Uh, Roger Ebert on that one. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have some some little kind of trivia things that might come up, uh, but we'll we'll save those for the moment. So in terms of the plot, like to just the very quick, like bare bones, um, 
There was another island. There wasn't just um uh oh what oh see I the Isla what was the first uh I only wrote down the new one which is uh Isla uh, Sorna but I don't remember Isla Nublar. There it is. Thank you. So there was there wasn't just the one island. There was a site B island because of course. And um, some uh, rich family finds it, and uh, we find out that there are still dinosaurs on it uh, living on their own without all of the help of the scientists that were on the other island. And, of course, we won't learn anything from the previous movie, and uh, Richard Attenborough has already sent a team over, and basically one of them is Jeff Goldblum's girlfriend. He goes over to try to bring her back. Um, But then we also know that there is uh, um, this nephew, um, played by Arliss Howard, and the name of which is escaping me, and his name is Peter. And Peter, of course, wants to exploit this and uh, gain because InGen is, like, going under. So basically, we have the one crew of good people trying to just kind of leave, and then the one crew trying to exploit the situation, which, of course, somehow ends with a T-Rex being brought back to the mainland because why not? So, Ben... uh, the, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I kind of want to start with this idea of, in terms of being being 12, right, and, and this movie coming out, on a scale of, like, zero being I couldn't care less and 10 being, like, ru- like literally running through a door, like, leaving a Ben Stahl-shaped hole through the door, how excited were you for this oh, movie? Oh, yeah, I was a 10. Like, the first okay. movie was, you know, even even back then... Now I look at it, of course, with a greater appreciation. But back then, the first movie was, you know, the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Why wouldn't I want to go see a sequel? Yeah, and and it's funny because obviously, I mean, obviously there are sequels at this point. We've definitely bridged that gap. I think the '90s really solidified the idea of of sequels, like especially outside of the horror genre. So, yeah, I think everybody, and and it wasn't just a sequel, right? It was. It wasn't like, you know, like nothing against Die Hard 2, but like, you know, John McTiernan didn't come back. It was Rennie Harlan. We're getting Spielberg back to do this, this, this big break, his, his multiple Oscar winning break. And he's coming back to do a sequel to Jurassic Park. Like, and, and I, I, I know, cause I was, I was 10, I was 10 when this came out and I know I was excited to see it and I probably loved it in the theater. And I don't so I actually so before because I almost went into my own thought and I don't want to do that yet. Um, roughly speaking, if unless you know the exact number, how many times do you think you've seen this? Oh movie? gosh, um, I know I know I saw it in the theater three times, including the the double dip at the drive-in. Um, the double whammy, yeah. I've watched it. I probably watched it. You know, probably three or four times when I get on VHS. Only probably only once on DVD. And then I think I watched, I think I actually watched it after we did the Jurassic Park podcast, just because I was in the mood. I had it on 4K at that point. Why not? So not that many. Yeah. So I, okay. So, so I, I saw this in theaters that I know. And then in terms of complete watches, I don't think I watched it in its entirety again until college, actually. Uh, And I remember uh, cause I had never seen the third one and they, and the, like the first DVD collection of it with like the gates opening up. I don't know if you had that one, but that, that was the thing that I had. And so Melissa and I watched all three, like over a weekend. And so I know I'd, I'd seen it twice. And then this, this last week was the last time I watched it. Uh, it was so, uh, so it's really only the three times that I've seen it. 
And I, I, my, my oldest was downstairs. She's, she's seven and she's seen the first one and, and really liked it. And so I was like, Hey, Stell, I'm putting on the sequel to Jurassic Park. Do you want to watch it with me? She said, sure. So I got my laptop up and I'm taking notes and she's by me. And I don't, I don't know if it's like in a, just the way that kids now have access to anything they want to see at any point. And I don't mean that in like in a, like they're going to see terrible stuff, but like if there's a show they want to watch, it's just like two clicks away. You know, I mean I, the days of, of having to catch a show at the right moment, or it would just, it, it was gone. They, they will never know that <laughs> that's, that is not a struggle. My kids will ever know. Um, so, so it turns on and like, like, six minutes in she is just like hey can i color when this is on and i'm like yeah of course like you don't i was like you don't even have to watch it she's like no 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 that's fine and then when they got to the island there were there were bits of it that they kind of pulled her in but like my seven-year-old was just bored and i gotta i'm i'm not gonna lie i i hate to just start off this way ben i was pretty bored too in this watch uh yeah when i watched it again after we did jurassic park um, I knew, I remember going into it thinking that I, at this point, it's definitely not as good. Um, for me, for me, the <laughs> gosh, like the, it, the part I just, the sticks in my head the most is far too late in the film. And that's where they're walking through the grass and being stalked by the Raptors. And it's like, that is like one of the few moments that sticks out is like, yeah, Spielberg got that shot. Right. Trust me, there are definitely, I, I know the one, and I think it's it's sort of like the, it's in the, I think it's in the trailer, but it, it's that shot of um, the uh, the one side of the trailer hanging over the, the side of the cliff and Julianne Moore falling towards the camera and like hitting the glass. Like it just, however they shot that and that angle and like the fact that she was hitting plexiglass. So it was like, so she had to stop. I, there are, de- I mean, there are, brushes of that Spielbergian uh, camera usage in this that are just on point that I think are great. But I, I totally, they're, they're so sparsed out. And the other thing that doesn't help this movie at all. And, and I, I think we need, I, most of my issues I think come from the script. Um, So if, if we're breaking down the script, you know, I guess like maybe broad strokes there, Ben, like, what are things that work for you for the script and what are things that don't work for you? Well, you know, this is just, again, the dinosaur nerd in me, but one of the things that does work is we get to see dinosaurs much faster in this film. You know, they don't. Yes, very true. Um, but, and this is something like that my dad had observed, you know, when he first watched it was, uh, he said, yeah, the dinosaurs are great, but um, you know what? Like, Ian Malcolm just doesn't work as a lead character. He's much better off in the supporting role, and my goodness, does this film miss Sam Neill and Laura Dern. Well, it's it's the, they ground it, you know? And and it's funny, and I understand that part of the, the story is that Ian Malcolm is now more jaded. You know, part of it is that... Um, he he broke like a non-disclosure agreement basically and talked about it and everybody he's basically now seen as kind of a nut and everybody thinks he's more of a joke in, in like the real world and so he he is more serious we don't get to have the much go faster ian malcolm from the first one in which i mean in a movie full of really great performances i i think jeff goldblum steals that movie 
I mean, if you talk, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I love Sam Neill and Laura Dern in that movie. They are spectacular. But Jeff Goldblum gets to just be like suave and and say these like really interesting, prophetic, but also absurd things. I I you're I mean, you're totally right. I and well, I, I should give credit to your dad. Your dad, totally right. Yeah, just uh, just didn't work. And uh, I think also the fact that we actually have human villains this time around um takes a lot away from the threat of the dinosaurs because the dinosaurs of course aren't villains they're just animals but the real threat in this film you know it's it's a subtle nod in the first film that you know man is the real monster in this one they just like yeah whatever we're just done with nuance we're gonna tell you right out now humans are dumb yeah i i a really uh kind of terrible instance of foreshadowing in this movie happens really early when uh, Ian is going to visit John at his home and John explains the situation and, and, uh, and John goes, I'm not making the same mistakes again to which Ian responds. No, you're making new ones. Um, and that's, I think the issue, my biggest issue with the movie is that even though I, you know, plot wise, they, they're different beats felt very similar, right? Like the second that we meet Peter, we just go, Oh, now this, he's the new lawyer. We don't like, he's the new person in the movie who were like, Oh, you're, you're no good. And, and of course there's another child, a child that shouldn't be there when they are. Um, and it's, I just, I, and David Kep is behind a, a lot of really good screenplays. And so I, I just wonder if this is like, I can't tell if this is like studio interference or too many cooks in the kitchen or just trying to be like a, a, a non-impressive sequel in terms of the story. But yeah, I, I got, I was just kind of befuddled by a lot of the choices in this. Well, I, gosh, I also, I, I read the book and. Oh, the, oh, interesting. But it's been, it's been years. I read the book shortly after I saw the movie and they would have. I don't think they would have done any themselves any service in adapting the book as strictly either um, only because, um, and of course in Jurassic park, the book Ian Malcolm is killed and then he's magically brought back, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes style in the books like, Oh, he was never dead. So, and that the only reason that Crichton (laughs) brought, brought Malcolm back was because he was so popular in the film. Um, So, Interesting. And now I might be, I might be asking you to plumb the depths of your memory, but in the first book, cause I've, I've not read either of them. Um, in the original, is there mention to a site B that you know of? I don't remember. And I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm no. certain the only reason Crichton wrote a second book is because the movie was such a massive success. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it when, uh, yes, that, that sounds about right to me. <laughs> Um, so I, I also, okay. I, (laughs) I don't know how to approach this. So I, I just want to say it. I've learned a new phrase that I really like. I'm going to speak in draft. So this is not a final thought by any means. Um, but I need to put this out there because I have almost thought about nothing else since I've seen the movie. I got to talk about the opening. I've got to talk about this rich prissy stuffy british family sailing across the seven seas landing on an island and just like they're talking about did i I had to have written some of this down um uh what are they having like lamb they're having lamb and um 
and I don't, and I think maybe it's it's the the '90s of it all. But when when the woman goes, oh, "Thank you, Jeffrey," I couldn't help but think of Jeff. Jeffrey's the name of the butler in the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and so I was like, "Okay, this is something." And then like, just the the these people. Why do we open on these people? I know, like. This is supposed to be the prompt that launches us into the movie that this island is no longer um, uh, uh, a secret and that now we need to sort of deal with it. But you have picked like I, I don't know. OK, this is this. OK, this is now the writing and draft part of it. Every one of the people on that island deserved to die. Every one of them deserved to get eaten by dinosaurs. And I'm almost upset that they weren't, uh, <laughs> which again, speaking in draft. Um, but like why? Why do we open on this family? Uh, no, you're right. It it, it, <laughs> it doesn't set to me. That opening doesn't set up the story that we get. That opening would set up uh, government interference from, you know, countries in from from Costa Rica. You know, since they're so close by, um, for the Amer- I, I would yeah. imagine the uh, the American government. You know, trying to interfere. Like, but instead, we just get. Um, and actually, this doesn't come as a shock given the world we live in. But you know, the big corporation getting to do whatever the heck they want. Um, honestly, yeah. Now yeah. that now now that I say it that way, it makes perfect sense. Um, but yeah, it's it sets. I the opening sets up much more of a horror story than we get. Yeah, no, that's very true. And and I'm, and then it's like I'm not. There's also, I think one of the things that is very impressive about um the original Jurassic Park is not only does it really very subtly and succinctly weave in a bunch of different storylines with a bunch of different people but we also get a lot of information fairly quick and sometimes it's expository and sometimes it isn't uh as in the case of the uh, uh the Mr. DNA character that we get in in the first one um but like I feel like we're 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 really brought into the world. And then in this one, I it we have to really like it doesn't take that long to get to the island, but it feels like a slog. We have an extended scene with uh with Ian Malcolm and what we find out is his daughter, and we're like, oh that's right, Ian has 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 a kid. Apparently kids from the the first movie, but um uh we it just it's so long and and again and and maybe Ben, maybe this is just things that like people like us when we we've seen movies so much because I hadn't seen this movie in a while. But the second that uh, we get the shot of the daughter looking in the the really fancy trailer that they're going to take to the island, it's like, oh yeah, well of course she's going to sneak in there because you're telling us she's going to. I mean, you've basically spoon fed this to us, and and I honestly think like my biggest my biggest problem with the movie is that nothing came as a surprise and not that it has to be a surprise, but like I was surprised a lot in the first one. I never was quite sure who was going to make it and what was going to happen. Like, I mean, again, to this day, I forget spoiler alert, uh, that Sam Jackson dies in the first one. And every time it happens, I'm like, Oh shit, that's right. He's gone. This is the hold on to your butts guy. So I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm just let down, Ben. I'm let down. Uh, you know, again, you're not wrong. Like this, there is no, there are no surprises in this one. You know, in the first movie, uh, you get all those plot plot points that are weaved together. Like the only reason that everything goes bad is because of Nedry. If Nedry hadn't been there, everything would be fine. In this one, everything goes goes wrong because it can. 
Um, and there's no there's no beautiful <laughs> twist like, oh my gosh, you know, the dinosaurs are spontaneously changing sex. Like, and that's that's part of what's making things go wrong in the park. It's like, no, there you're just going to an island with dinosaurs. Of course, bad things are going to happen. It's so funny. Like, I'm looking through my notes, and like a lot of this, like I even wrote down. Um, I said the first moment when the big dinosaurs go by that we see and, uh, and Richard Schiff and Vince Vaughn get to see them for the first time. And my note, and I, I'm just going to, I said the first moment of the big dinosaurs going by doesn't work like it does in the first one for two reasons. One, it's obviously not the first moment of seeing dinosaurs in the movie. So, so like, it's not the reveal of it. And then I said the way it's played out, um, the part of what makes that, that moment in the first one so great is that yet John Williams score swelling and, and like picking it up. If you, I, I want everybody to at some point go back and just watch the clip of the, like, I think it's a, it might be a stegosaurus. I don't know. Something going by. And when they see it, the score doesn't even know what the moment is supposed to be. It's slightly happy, but also kind of ominous. And it's just like, what, what is happening? And I, I, Ben, Ben, I wanted to like this movie so much. I, <laughs> what happened? I need answers. Uh, what what <laughs> happened is that uh, this is this is the genesis of the cardboard cutout sequel. Um, the only difference. Oh, good point. The only difference is it was it was helmed by a director who could, at the very least, at at several moments, make it look better than it actually is. Uh, yeah, that I, I love, I actually really love the way you said that. And like, I just, I had to go back just to be clear. And I'm looking at it right now. He, he has the, what I like to call his, his trio of constant support. He's got Michael Kahn editing. He has Janusz Kaminski doing the, the cinematography and he's got John Williams doing the score. It's not even like he came back with a new team and maybe it was like, Oh, chalk it up to not having a, a, a common, you know, vocab with these people. All of the elements are still there. I mean, there's, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Ben. Um, I think the last thing I want to say before I, I want to give you some time to, to, to soapbox good, bad, or, or which way is just the, the way that I feel like the characters and you, you kind of mentioned this, um, with, uh, uh, um, uh, the way that Ian Malcolm kind of being the lead doesn't work. I also find that a lot of the character characters in this are caricaturish. Um, I love Pete Possilwaite, but like he is just playing the like the, the he's the hunter, and Peter Stormar is the uber macho guy, and and uh, Arliss Howard is the the nebbish villain guy. I mean, everybody is playing that. I mean, you know, Vince Vaughn is the the comedic sidekick. I mean, it's just it's all there, and n- nobody feels like a real human to me. I mean, and 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 I. I Part of why I wanted to say that is to kind of cycle it back to Ebert's review, which is like the dinosaurs feel more human to me than the humans do. Uh, gosh, this this movie is uh, unfortunately, if I for my soapbox, it's just it also the first movie earns its laughs and they are, you know, they're few and they're great. And they're in moments where you can have them, you know, with Nedry talking to um, what what's it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dobbs. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got Dobbs. See, no here. one cares. Um, <laughs> this movie is trying to, and you know, I've got a quote for uh, later in the show. But uh, this movie is throwing around jokes in moments where there are dinosaurs chasing people, and where the art, you know, the RVs getting attacked. And it's like 
this is not the right time for this. They're really just trying to play this off as the next, you know, big blockbuster. And uh, it's it's not working with, with, with the stakes being the way they are. Um, you know, this it's sort of... I hate to say it because, you know, I love the Marvel movies, but it is kind of a precursor. It is kind of a precursor to Marvel in that they are trying to have much more fun with the terror in this film um, and trying to create an all around blockbuster as opposed to a very focused film that the first one was. Well worded. I like that a lot. Um, Before we hop into the categories, um, I thought about this towards the end of the movie and uh, then I did a little work and I thought, well, this could be fun if we want to think about it in terms of this. So um, if you include Duel, which technically was a TV movie, but I think has sort of been claimed as Spielberg. I mean, Spielberg's first movie is Sugarland Express, but I think Duel has sort of become this we count it kind of movie. Um, but if you include Duel, Spielberg has directed 33 feature films. So... Given that, and given the fact that that movie is perfectly, or that number is perfectly divisible by three, top tier, middle tier, bottom tier, where do you see the Lost World falling? Oh boy, this is tough because I know, I know, I didn't, I didn't this prep is, you this, for this, and one. this is actually mostly tough because I kind of fell off the Spielberg bandwagon in the two thousands. I didn't see a lot of his films. I missed out on AI. Um, goodness, I can't even remember most of his work post Lost World. So I, I wouldn't know. I would have to put it in the mid only because I couldn't tell you what I think is worse. Um, because. Sure. And, and that's it's it's funny you say that because a lot of those a lot of those movies and don't get me wrong. He has a, um, another couple of two movie years. Um, I actually his his O two where he does uh, Minority oh. Report and Catch Me If You Can. Forgot I about love those. Both yeah, of those both movies. excellent. Um, uh, he he does it again in O five with War of the Worlds and Munich. And Munich he gets a um another Oscar nomination for. Um, but like it's like he plays like you know in the in the tens in the twenty tens he gets very, I don't want to say um. Uh, like stuck in a way, but like he's he does Lincoln, he does Bridge of Spies, he does The Post, you know, and obviously he's just the West Side Story, and none of those movies are bad. Bad is not the word I would use for them, but I'm I wasn't. Those movies kind of hinge on the look and the and they're 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 a Spielberg movie. It they're well made movies, but I think the plot is the stories for those are going to be the things that either bring you in or keep you out. Um, and I think I do I think. And there's a few of his, like, I haven't seen the advent. I think he did the adventures of Tintin, um, which was that kind of animated movie. Uh, but I'm pretty sure he was director for that. Um, and there's maybe some of the, I, I know I have, I have not seen Circle and Express and I have not seen what I hear as a train wreck in 1941. Um, but given the, the drop off, I, I think this has got clear bottom tier Spielberg on it, which again is, you know what? Uh, I, now that I'm looking through his filmography on IMDb, I am realizing, oh my God, yes, I love Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, War of the Worlds. Um, and even even though I wasn't a fan of Tintin, I acknowledge that, you know, it did something very different for animated films. And, you know, a lot of the stuff he's done in the past couple of years, like Lincoln, missed it. But I can tell that, you know, this is, you know, a top tier, well-made film. I'd have to agree because... Uh, 
you know, the only the only film I can think of post Lost World that I would also include in such a low tier is uh, another sequel, and that's Indiana Jones. Yep, yep, I yep. Didn't have to go there because Ben did. Thank you. Um, lovely. So now let's now let's get to the uh, the awards and categories that are specific to Rewind twenty five fifty two. The first award uh, is the Cuba Gooding Jr. Icarus Award for the performer that rose the highest and fell the furthest. You know what I have written down here, Ben? I said this may be the first time I don't have a winner for this award because oh. I don't think anybody's career really fell off so bad in the way that like say Cuba Gooding Jr's did after Jerry Maguire. Um in fact, if anything, a lot of these actors went on to have way better careers. Um so I, I don't did you have an answer for this cuz I I I chose to I chose to abstain from this one. Well, I I won't say he's had a complete disaster of a career, but the only actor I could conceivably throw in there would would be uh, Vince Vaughn, only because he had this peak in the early 2000s with uh, Wedding Crashers, Dodgeball, um, Old School. And then he just sort of, dis- you know, it's not like people said go away, but he just sort of disappeared. Um, and unlike his fellow comedians like Ben Stiller, Nolan Wilson, didn't have like Wes Anderson to, you know, to back up, to go back to. So, yeah. I mean, I know he's come back recently with uh, Freaky, so he may be <laughs> due for another comeback, but it's like he just sort of disappeared. Well, it- yeah, and he like you know I, the the second season of True Detective was only okay. He he he's been in the last two S. Craig Zaylor movies. He was in. Have you seen Brawl on Cell Block ninety nine? No, that movie is fucking intense. That movie is. If you are not a fan of like <laughs> explicit violence, I don't recommend it. But if you can, if you have the stomach for it, it is like he plays just a. I, I hate to just be as bland as badass but he just plays a badass in that movie um but yeah he definitely is on more of the like he says a lot of more indie stuff lately um i i think Vince Vaughn is a respectable answer and i'm gonna i'm gonna allow it on the pod oh thank it's you been submitted <laughs> and approved um uh this one was interesting this one i might we might need to have a discussion on the next one which is the dante's peak award for the performer or director currently held in the highest regard now you could go with spielberg but i i wanted to focus on performers and I, so, so I guess I think where I am is, is it Spielberg? Is it Jeff Goldblum or is it Julianne Moore? I think those are the people who I have, I've narrowed it down to. I picked Goldblum and Julianne Moore for two different reasons. One, nice. um, Goldblum, just because he's Goldblum, like he just has to exist and open his mouth and, you know, get cast in the weirdest things. And it, he just fits. And Julianne Moore, because her career post Lost World has, you know, she's had hits and misses like everyone, but you know, she's had Big Lebowski, Still Alice, uh, Still Alice, um, and so many great films. So I mean, it, just just even this year, she's nominated for supporting actress for Boogie Nights. Um, she's nominated twice in 2002, once for lead in Far From Heaven, and then supporting for The Hours. And then uh, yeah, obviously wins in 2014 for Still Alice. And yeah, yeah, sure. She made some movies that maybe weren't so hot. But I mean, yeah. I, as as like trajectories go. And and I mean, if you look from, I think, the acting standpoint, 
She's the only actor post this movie to win an Oscar. And I would say, as I'm looking through here, I think I could say, let alone be nominated for one. So um, I think I think that's a nice, safe, safe bet there. So Julianne Moore takes the Dante's Peak Award. I like that. So now we're going to get to more of the 90s stuff. Um, so the first one we have is the Talk to the Hand Award for the most dated piece of dialogue. Ben, do you want to go first? What did you have here? All right. So this is an exchange between Eddie, Ian, and Nick and Sarah. I think I think it's when uh, the RV is over the edge of the cliff and Eddie comes up. He says, what do you need? Ian says, rope. Eddie says, okay, rope. Anything else? Ian says, yeah, three double cheeseburgers with everything. Nick says, no onions on mine. Sarah says, and an apple turnover. I mean, it's it's fast. It's a fast food joke. That's so 90s. <laughs> that that's great i mine is also i mine is actually a reference that is made and i don't have the exact line so i i apologize for that but um at one point i believe vince vaughn refers to julianne moore's character as dr quinn which is clearly in very very 90s reference to dr quinn medicine woman uh which again i think if you're born post 2003 you are gonna have no no idea what the hell Dr. Quinn even was. Okay, cool. Those are great. I, I always love doing these. Okay, so the next one we have here is the I'm Waiting for My Facts Award for the most dated prop or idea. There was, I mean, there was a fair amount of stuff in here. I, I decided to go, I went pretty basic, but I went with the uh, old, very big, clunky computer monitors that used to jettison out like two feet because that's how that's how much depth they had. Um, and there's a bunch of them in the little, like the converted RV trailer thing with all the equipment in it. So that, that was what I went with, but Ben, what do you have for this one? Uh, I may be wrong about this and you just watched it recently. So maybe you can confirm there were satellite phones in this. Yes. Yes, there was. Yeah, there was definitely, definitely a nineties prop. <laughs> yeah. The sat phone, you got to get the sat phone up. Oh, let's just shorten everything because it sounds more impressive. The sat phone. Um, I, okay. I'm really, I really am excited for this next one because I have, I have like a, I have like a surprise winner for you on this one for me, my vote. So the next one we have is the Holy shit. They were in this movie award for best surprise performance slash cameo. Who, who did you end up going with here? Oh, I went with Peter Stormare. I always forget. Okay. Always forget he's in it. So I, I, I said for, I, so I said for me, it's Stormare versus Schiff because I, I know, I know Richard Schiff from the West Wing and totally forget that he's in this as well. But I want to throw out another name and I want to tell you what this person is from. Um, the name of the actor is Thomas Rosales Jr. In the movie, in this movie, he plays the character who has the headphones on who doesn't hear Peter Stormare dying when he dies. And that's the whole bit. Like I didn't know he was whatever because I'm on this train right now, the nine movies, Thomas Rosales jr. Also is in con air. He plays one of Sandino's associates, uh, who, who basically have the plane that they're going to, the other plane that they're going to try to sneak out in. And, um, Nicholas Cage has the line. He says to him, he goes, if you fire that gun, you're going to have 20 pissed off cons on you. And then the guy puts on a silencer and laughs. And then Nicholas Cage goes, well, who way for the sins of fucking silence? It's the same guy. And I watched them so close together that I was like, holy shit. I mean, I know. And he's a stuntman. He's been in a lot of movies like this. And I, and but Stormar is the winner. 
but I, I think like I, I think I really just want to give it to this guy because he's in two of these movies like like weeks weeks apart. He was in like blockbuster movies. I got to give it to you there. That's incredible. <laughs> and 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 it it is. It's one of those things where if I had not seen them within like a week of each other, there is no way. There is no way I would have caught that. The next one I had a, a little more trouble finding an answer to, which ultimately I think is a good thing. Um, but the next award is the Great White Ninja Award for the most problematic storyline slash character slash piece of dialogue. I I really had to like think about this one because I don't think that this movie is delving into too many like really bad tropes or stereotypes. Um, so the one that I ended up going with was just when Vince Vaughn says that he was filming a documentary for Greenpeace because of the chicks. Um, he makes some line about like Greenpeace is 80% women and how like basically it was a chance to hook up, um, which is like, yeah, not great, but also not the worst thing that could be said in a movie. So I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, it's not great, but I, 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 it was, I couldn't really find that much. Um, Ben, did you come up with anything? I like actually this? interpreted this differently because, and you know, this isn't, I wouldn't say this is a problematic scene, you know, in terms of like, oh, are we getting into stupid taboo stuff that we shouldn't be discussing? But like, just, you know, in watching it in more recent years, just the T-Rex in San Diego scene is just, it's a, it's a train wreck of a scene um, that deserved better. Um, it's a boat, it's a yeah. boat wreck of a um, scene. And I mean, the, the closest you get to, you know, problematic there is literally, there is a moment where the T-Rex is chasing a, a bunch of Japanese men in suits and they're, you know, pointing up and it's like, that's clearly, you know, a Godzilla joke. And it's like, eh, you know, they're that the entire scene yeah, is just played for laughs. It's, it's just like, Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's, that's a great answer. Don't get me. And, and I think like, it's not like, I'm trying to think of a, of one that we've covered. Well, it's, it's not like, it's not like Beverly Hills Ninja where the whole idea is like, let's watch this big white guy try to be uh, a ninja and how it just doesn't work. The, I mean, the whole movie is the, the answer to this question. Um, so there's not, not too much here. Um, I, okay. So, so the next one is, is uh, the show is called rewind 2552, but we're, we have a category called fast forward 2552 where you can recast the director in one major role with somebody working today. Ben, I'd love to hear what you came up with for this one. Well, I just talked about those horrendous San Diego scenes. Um, I would specifically get Gareth Edwards to be the director because um, I thought 2014 Godzilla was um, a great monster attacking, you know, disaster movie. Um, and it's kind of circles back to Spielberg because, you know, Edwards uh, modeled a lot of his plot and, you know, his concealment of the monsters after Jaws. So, it's very much an homage to Spielberg, and uh, if I was to pick a performer, I would uh, I would get Oscar Isaac to play Nick Van Owen and have him have a more substantial part by the end of the film. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, and I went with a different actor for a different role, which is great. So let's 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 back pocket Oscar Isaac for that because I I like that a lot. Um, I went with I I I kind of like your answer better for director. I went with the Russo brothers because I know they can handle the spectacle. Um. But I Gareth Edwards' work on Godzilla it does stand out, so I'm gonna scratch mine. But so in addition to the cast and director that you've assembled, um, 
uh, to rep- to star in this production of Ian Malcolm because I've seen this actor in a lot of things recently that aren't the MCU, and I just really like what he's doing. So I want to put Sebastian Stan in this, and I want him to play Ian Malcolm because it isn't the quirky Ian Malcolm that we know from the first one. It's more of the leading man one. And Sebastian Stan, I want keep putting him in stuff. He's good. I want to see him in more stuff. Same with Oscar Isaac. Just put them in more stuff. So, um. So the next thing we have is the Oscar re-examination. So we ask if this movie should have been, uh, should have won or been nominated for for anything. Now in this instance, it actually was up for visual effects. It didn't win. It lost to Titanic. Gotta say, I think that was the right choice. Titanic, then and now, is still a a visual masterpiece that I feel like James Cameron is trying to one up ever since. And I, I I gotta be honest, I'm not sure he's gonna be able to do it. But hey, time will tell. Um. But do you think there was anything, any other Oscars this movie should have been up for? Um, the only, the only one I can conceivably think of is exactly the kind of category that this film would get nominated for, and that's just like sound design. Yeah, and there were so many, and this, the, there were so many movies that came out this year. There were, I mean, so many other sci-fi movies like The Fifth Element and Starship Troopers, but so many action like face off and con air and, and titanic and then movies that are just really good prestige movies with good sound like uh like la confidential was up for sound and like you might not think it right off the bat but it's like yeah that movie that movie sounds pretty good the way they blend everything going on um but yeah i'm not i'm not it, it would not have shocked me if this was up for sound and sound effects editing but um beyond that i don't i think it it got the one that's cool you know you get to hang that on your hat um in terms of, uh, does this movie make anyone's Mount Rushmore? I, I think the answer is no. Uh, I don't know if you could conceivably put this on anybody's, but I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I got really specific with this one. This is on, this is Ooh, yes. going on only one of two Mount Rushmores, and that is the Mount Rushmore of Jurassic Park films, because as <laughs> as much as we're as much as we're critiquing this one, it doesn't get better. Um, <laughs> I love um, I love that. And so then much. also just uh the Mount Rushmore of when I say in this case modern modern dinosaur films because outside of the Jurassic Park films right now I think we've had a Sound of Thunder and that might be it and that was also not received well. It's, uh yeah, I I agree. The oh man, the Mount Rushmore of Jurassic Park movies is so great. It's so great. And you know, it's not even the Roosevelt of them. It's probably yeah. like Jefferson. It's one of the decent heads on there, right? So oh man, that is that's great. Um so the last the last question and I'll read it verbatim as I do every episode. In another 25 years, when the world descends into chaos and madness, will anyone remember this film? Will it be worthy of another reexamination? The answer is yes, but only in the context of the franchise as a whole. Yes, I, Ben, my answer is yes, because of the franchise. Absolutely. If you pull this movie out, it it just isn't, it doesn't work. It, I, I mean, and it doesn't even necessarily work in the franchise, but because it is, and honestly, what, what we're saying about this, like the answer to this question in terms of its relation to the franchise, we should be real. It's in its relation to the first one because the drop-off from, from Jurassic Park to Lost World is huge and it never gets above Lost World. So yeah, it's, it, it's all in relation back. The goodwill that we all still have for the first one is still carrying over. It's the reason why 
we're still kind of quasi excited about the next one coming out because they're bringing back they're bringing back the crew. But I don't know. I don't know, Ben. Yeah, it's a uh, it's tough. I again, I, I love I love what Marvel does with their movies. I don't like that everyone is trying to do the same thing. I that's I I agree. I agree. Um well Ben, that was that was us talking about the Lost World. I I cannot thank you enough for coming on the pod to to talk some 90s, to talk some Spielberg, to talk some dinosaurs. Um but I want to give you a chance to talk about um what what you're doing. So do you want to do you want to talk uh, a little bit about sure. that? Sure. So Shortly after I was uh, on on your show for Jurassic Park, I really got this thought like, well, you know what? I've got I've got a laptop. I'm stuck at home, you know, not able to go anywhere. You know, this is this is, you know, we're a few months into 2020. So, of course, you know, we're all stuck at home. It's like, what's a good way to, you know, express my love for film without just making stupid Facebook posts all the time about it? And what's a great way to get in touch with friends who also <laughs> want to talk about this stuff? So I, I started a little film show called The Sunday Matinee. Um, we are currently uh, currently ramp- ramping up to the 50th episode. I dropped off a little bit after oh, after nice. the end of last summer just because, uh, you know, as Adam said, we're theater people. At the end of last summer, theater started to sort of come back into our lives and it started taking up more of my life and uh so it kind of dropped off. It picked up again a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we tend to try to focus more on what's current. Um, you know, we did a Batman episode recently. We'll be talking about Doctor Strange soon. But we also like to, you know, go back and look at some old stuff. We just did an episode of the first two, covering the first two seasons of His Mark Dark Materials on HBO. So it's not all current stuff. And, you know, we did we did an episode where one of my friends and I just talked for 90 minutes about the Criterion Collection. So we try to get all over the place, but, you know, it's not quite as uh, as focused as what you do here. <laughs> well, trust me, uh, uh, the focus came in with the category section because before that it was just like, well, what am I doing? Uh, and, uh, but what, what's great though is that you do get to, you get to delve into the things that really speak to you. I, I won't lie, week to week, I'll see a movie I'm covering and I'm like, Oh, this is going to not, this is not going to be good. This is just not going to be fun for me. I got to do research and spend time on a movie that is just gobbledygook. Um, but, uh, I have, I have watched a few, I have watched part of the criterion one and I, that's a boutique Blu-rays is a huge part of my life. I've been very snobbish about that, but I, I'm glad that somebody out there is also giving some love to that. So, um, the Sunday matinee and it's a, uh, yeah, it's we're on YouTube. YouTube um, right? I try to drop a new episode every Tuesday. Um, but again, you know, life happens, you know, so life. Yes. So keep an eye out on uh, on Tuesdays on YouTube for that. Um, I've also got a blog, which I need to start writing more in. Um, so, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and last the last episode, awesome. we did, I also had brought in a guest host. So it's not just me rambling all the time. I love to try and get other people in to talk about the stuff that they want to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so uh, that's the Sunday matinee. This is Rewind twenty five fifty two. You can find us in all the places where you listen to podcasts: Spotify, Anchor, Google Play, Apple. Um, we're on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and before we go, here is the IMDb description for next week's film. 
Two lifelong buddies must overcome a series of obstacles to enjoy their ultimate fishing trip. That is next week's film. My name is Adam, and this is Rewind 2552.